Wednesday. Do you remember Wednesday? Seems like a long time ago, but Wednesday was a huge, uh, momentous day for us here in Australia, a historic day, really. Um, There were plenty of celebrations, lots of cheering, um, lots of people partying in the streets, Uh, so much so that when I got home from a meeting I was at in the city that night and uh, I turned on the TV to watch the news, there was just one story dominating everything at that time. Yes, uh, the Socceroos beat Honduras and made it through to the World Cup final. Uh, And there was the other news as well, which had dominated most of the rest of the day, the results of the same-sex marriage survey. Now, I mention that because I do want to come back and talk about that uh, at the end of the talk this afternoon. Uh, The reason is it's important and significant, but Galatians chapter 4 has something really relevant. It's it's really uh, connected with how we should be thinking about stuff like this, like uh, the the church's response to the same-sex marriage campaign. And here's why. Here's why it's important. Galatians 4 has something really significant to say about the difference between true gospel faith and the kind of Christianized religion that turns up in lots of churches, in all sorts of churches. No church is really immune from it. The big idea of the passage, so the main idea that's driving through Galatians 4 is this, that there is a version of following Jesus that looks very religious and maybe very, very Bible-focused, but in the end it makes you just as much a slave to the evil and dark spiritual forces of this world as outright paganism or witchcraft or any other rejection of the one true God who sent his son into the world. Now, I'm going to say that again because that's really significant. Uh, You know how I often put up pictures of people and the quotes next to them? Well, this is something you can quote me on. I'm happy to be quoted on this. Uh, There is a version of following Jesus. This is the main idea going on here. There's a version of following Jesus that looks very religious. It might be very Bible-focused, but in the end, it makes you just as much a slave to the evil and dark spiritual forces of this world as paganism or witchcraft would. Now, if that surprises you, if if it shocks you to hear me say that, um, I want to say good. Uh, Because if you're shocked by that, then you're getting a sense of how explosive uh, it is, the things that Paul is writing about here. The things that he says in this chapter are just, they're dynamite. And we need to pay attention to this. This is in the Bible because we need to hear it. Uh, We need to hear it, those of us who are believers, who are Christians, we need to hear it so that we don't fall into the trap and end up becoming slaves, um, slaving over a hot stove, like in the title of the sermon, so that we don't become slaves without realising that it's happening to us. But I also want to say, if there are any of you here who have your doubts about Christianity, I hope that by looking at Galatians 4 today, you'll see there's a genuine difference between true Christianity, true faith, and the kind of self-righteous, moralistic religion that turns up alongside Christianity very often. It's exactly the kind of thing that Paul is warning about in this passage. Now, as I read this passage, there are a few things that just make me sit up and pay attention. Two things in particular. Uh, First, there is the explosive and provocative way that Paul talks about this subject, and we're going to pay most attention to that in a couple of minutes' time. 
But the other thing is the um, passionate appeal, uh, the language of personal connection that he uses while he's writing to these people. Uh, and I don't want you to miss this, so we're just going to pay a little attention to this first <clears throat> because this helps us see how important this message is. So if you've got your Bible open, in Galatians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 11 through to 21, just in brief overview. He starts out, look at the language in verse 11. He writes, he's writing to these people who he knows. He was there, he planted the church in southern Galatia, that southern part of Turkey, and he says, I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. He says, I plead with you. So you, you can tell this is a personal appeal. <clears throat> and that gets magnified. If you go on verses 13 through to 16, he talks about how when he first came to Galatia, it wasn't something that he'd planned. Uh, he ended up there as a result of sickness. But how when he was there, they loved him so much uh, that they would have torn their own eyes out of their head if it had have helped him get better. That's the kind of relationship, the kind of bond that they had. Uh, he then goes on in verses 17 to 20. He says, I fear that these people who've come up to see you and who are teaching you these things, they're zealous for you, but they're trying to make you like Jewish people. And they're flattering you and trying to say, oh, we're really on your side. But he fears that it's actually for no good at all. And so he finishes off that section picking it up from verse 19, again, that personal language. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you and change my tone. Now that makes me sit up and pay attention. You read that, you go, this is not something Paul is messing around with. He is kind of laying it on thick about their love for him, his love for them. And he does it for the same reason we do this in our own relationships because we, we, he's not doing it because he wants to win the debate. He's doing it because he wants them to know uh, that this comes from a place of genuine affection for them. This is something that's very real. This is very serious. And it's because it's so serious that he picks some very provocative, very explosive uh, way of describing things because he wants them to see the difference between two things that often look very much the same, um, biblical legalism and gospel faith. So what does he actually say? Well, he says that the kind of religion that Christians in Galatia are starting to adopt, uh, where they are going, yeah, you know what? We do need to get circumcised. We do need to start obeying the Old Testament food laws. We do need to start paying attention to special days and seasons and months. He says that kind of religion where it's Jesus plus these other rules and regulations, that kind of religion that you're heading towards is actually slavery. That kind of religion is just the same as godless paganism. That's the point he's making in verses 8 and 9. So in verse 8, he reminds them of the time before they believed. He says, before you came to know God, you were slaves to those who are by nature not gods. Now, um, you, you've got to understand that Back then, the, the people who made up the Christians in the churches in uh, that region called Galatia, 
before they were converted, they were mostly non-Jews. Uh, they would have been involved in the, the normal religious practices of the day, all kinds of idol-worshipping temples that were common throughout Asia Minor. They would have been involved in, uh, in some kind of religious devotion there, uh, often with temple prostitution, often with um, uh, drunkenness and all kinds of licentious living. And Paul's saying, back then, back in those times before you knew God, um, you were in slavery uh, to demonic powers as you worshipped other gods, gods who are no gods at all. But then you follow his argument. Have a look in the text. He goes, verse 8 to verse 9. Verse 9, it seems like he's saying to them that they're in danger of going back to their pagan roots. How is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles, he says? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Is Paul saying that they've decided to start worshipping at the pagan temples again? Well, I don't think that can be what he means. We know from the context of Galatians and from what he's going to say in verse 10, that can't be what he means. Remember the context? The whole point of this letter, the whole reason he's writing to them is to warn them to not get sucked in by this biblical legalism where they've got to obey all the Old Testament law. Uh, Remember the, the false teachers who come to Galatia, they're not saying, now that you've decided to follow Christ, you should go back to worshipping other gods and live the lifestyle that you had before. It's not that. They're they're saying the opposite. Uh, They're urging them that now that you've decided to follow Jesus, now you have to take on all of the Old Testament law as well. Circumcision, we see that referred to numerous times in in Galatians. Uh, The food laws, and here in chapter 4, the special festivals, Sabbath days, urging them to take on all those things in order to become pleasing to God. So it's not paganism that they're turning back to. What Paul's saying is that seeking to earn your salvation, trying to get God's favour through paying careful attention to biblical morality and religion, being scrupulous about God's laws in order to be in his favour, he's saying that makes you just as much a slave to evil powers as the old way of paganism. That's pretty explosive. You can be a religious, biblical kind of guy or girl and actually be far away from God. In his little book on Galatians, Tim Keller puts it like this. I've pulled out three sentences. He says, in the end, the religious person is just as lost and enslaved as the irreligious person. So the person who's going to follow the rules, try to be saved by religion, just as lost as the person who's worshipping in the pagan temple, moon worship or something like that. He asks why? The answer, both are trying to be their own saviour and lord, but in different ways. And then he says this, if anything but Jesus is a requirement for being happy or worthy, that thing will become our slave master. And that's the point of these verses. Paul's saying to the Galatians that you were enslaved by other evil powers before your conversion. That's obvious. We all accept that's true. It's easy to see how the the person who doesn't worship the true God of the Bible must be kind of on the wrong side of things. What you don't realize, though, is that by becoming religious legalists, 
that's putting you back in exactly the same category of slavery again. Now, hopefully, some of you are sitting there kind of scratching your heads and saying, well, yes, but shouldn't Christians be people who want to obey God? Shouldn't we? Doesn't Jesus say, you know, you'll show your love for me if you obey my commandments? And the answer is yes. But there's a difference between obeying God in order to win his approval or win his favour. There's a difference between that and obeying God to give honour to him, bring glory to him. One of those two is focused on me. Okay, Even though it looks like it's all about God, the religious legalist kind of person says, I do what God wants because I want to get his approval and his favour for me. The other approach is focused on God. I want to do what he says because I want to give him glory. I want to show that he is worthy. It's not about me being showing that I'm worthy. It's about me showing that he is worthy. They might look very similar in some ways, but one of those has no value at all. It's kind of like this coin that I've got here in my hand, this um, amusement coin token. I'll just zoom in on it for you. There you go. Uh, this, is, this looks like a 20-cent coin. It feels like a 20-cent coin. You know, it, it would be easy to think that this is a coin of some sort. Um, so much so that the way I came across this is somebody actually put it in the collection plate here at church a few years ago. And uh, the, the thing is, though, like it says on the front, it actually has no cash value. This is not really worth anything. It looks like a coin, but it's not really worth anything, except maybe for a sermon illustration. And even though this talk of obeying God's laws that they were getting told about in Galatia in order to gain his approval, even though that looked and sounded really biblical and good, Paul's saying it's like that token. It might look right, but it's actually worthless. In fact, he's saying it's worse than that. He's saying if you go down that path, you'll end up in the same kind of slavery as you were in before when you worshipped false gods. Now, that's pretty provocative. Um, That is an explosive kind of thing to say. And the interesting thing is Paul doesn't leave it there in kind of verses 8 to 11. He doubles down on it. He does a bit of a Donald Trump, actually. He doubles down on what he said when you get to verses 21 through to the end of the chapter. That strange little section about Hagar and Sarah and the sons of Abraham. Now, we don't have time tonight to go into all the ins and outs of that story from the Old Testament. You can read it in Genesis 15 through to 21. Uh, Let me summarise it like this. The key to understanding that section in Galatians 4 is to realise Paul's saying there are two ways that you can be related to Abraham. Uh, You can be related to him through the descent of one of the two sons that he had. So you can be related to him through slavery, through the son of the slave woman, Hagar, and that son was called Ishmael. Or you can be related to Abraham through the son of his wife, Sarah, the free woman, And that son was Isaac. Now, Isaac, you'll remember, in the story of the people of Israel, Isaac became the father of Jacob, whose other name was Israel. 
who was the father of 12 sons who became the heads of the 12 tribes. So the people of Israel come through the line of Isaac, right? The, the son of Sarah. They're the free ones. But see what Paul is saying here. This is the, this is the explosive thing. Um, you, you can bet that kind of what, what the false teachers are probably saying as they come to Galatia is something like this. It's great that you believe in Jesus Christ, that you're trusting in him as saviour. But what you need to know is you'll have to obey all of God's law if you will, can truly be considered as one of the children of Abraham. So Paul turns the tables on him. He lobs a grenade into their midst. Have a look at verses 24 and 25. Paul says, I'm using this as an analogy, uh, but in, in this analogy, the covenant from Mount Sinai, remember Mount Sinai is where God gave the law uh, to the people of Israel, the Ten Commandments and the other law. He says the covenant from Mount Sinai is the covenant which bears children who are slaves. That would be a shock to any Jewish person. He's saying that Hagar, the slave woman, corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem, where the temple is, where the high priest is, where the true worship of God is focused. People would be apoplectic. What? We're not the slave woman's children. We're the, we're the descendants of the, the free woman of Sarah. So Paul lobs this grenade in and it's kind of boom. It could hardly be more explosive. But he's making the same point we saw earlier. That there's a version of following Jesus that looks very religious. It's very concerned for the Bible. But in the end, it can make you just as much a slave to the evil forces of this world as outright paganism or witchcraft. Galatians 4 is explosive. The good news is, though, it's not all grenades and explosions in this chapter. Paul actually shares with us, just in brief here, but it's all the way through Galatians, but here in brief, the antidote to the poison of religious legalism. It's right near the beginning of the section that we read. If you go back to verse 9 of chapter 4 and look in the middle of that verse, there's one little phrase there that is really important for us. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, someone who's put their trust in Christ, he says, then you are known by God. It's not just that God knows about you. It's not a statement about God has information on you. He knows you. It's an intimate statement. It's a relational statement. And in that little statement, Paul is saying that your spiritual well-being is far less about the depth of your love toward God, your regard for God, and it's got much more to do with his love for you and his regard of you. He's saying if you're a believer, then you are in the special privileged place of being known by God. What does that look like? Well, he's talked about a number of things already through the book. Chapter 2, verse 20, he loved you and gave himself for you. In chapter 3, he's poured out his spirit into your life so that you now have God living in you. Just last week, the, the verse before this passage in chapter 4, verse 7, he's adopted you into his family, making you not just a child, but an heir. 
You're not someone on the outside then who needs to get God's attention. If you're a Christian, you are on the inside. You do not need to try to gain God's favour. If you're trusting in Jesus, then you are known by the God who made the entire universe, who rules the entire universe. He knows you. And when you get that, when that kind of locks in place in your head and your heart, then you've got the antidote to the poison of idolatry. You've got the antidote to the poison of religious legalism and all other things that are going to lead you away from God. It might help for you to understand what I'm getting at if you think about it this way. Let me illustrate it by talking about a relationship that I'm in. Um, One of the best things about being married to Fiona is that she knows me. Now, we don't have the world's most perfect marriage. I'll freely admit that. I certainly uh, have times when I wonder what she really thinks about me. The insecurity tape is playing on a loop in my head and I'm thinking, oh, because Fiona said this or she looked at me that way or she didn't do that, that means maybe she doesn't care about me. Maybe, maybe she's just putting up with me. All, all those sorts of insecurity things that can bubble out if you follow them along in, in bad ways. But one of the things I've learned and that I try to keep coming back to is this great blessing that she knows me She really knows me, and yet she still loves me. And as far as our relationship's concerned, that's really liberating. Because when I remember that, it sets me free from having to constantly work at winning her approval. It's a trap that I often fall into. I I feel like I need to. But when she reminds me that she knows me and she loves me, I realise, no, I I don't have to do that. But more than that, here's the other thing. Not only does it set me free from having to win approval, it sets me free to enjoy making her happy without having pressure on if I get it right, then that'll be good, and if I get it wrong, then I'm in the bad books. And that's what Paul is getting at here in Galatians. The gospel message shows us that we don't need to make ourselves beautiful or lovable to God because he already knows us and he still loves us. Much more so than in any marriage. All you have to do if you ever wonder about that is just look at the cross. There, when you look at the cross, you can realise God knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows everything about you, who you are. And yet he still loves you, even in the worst of your sin. And if you can get that, then make a recording of it. You know, play that tape in your head. Keep reminding yourself that he knows you and you'll find that it will help set you free from the need to perform for God and it will set you free to live, to enjoy living in a way that brings honour to God and glory to him. Now, that's kind of where we're heading next week as we get into chapter 5. That we have been set free. And having been set free, we can now live for God. We can live with joy rather than on a treadmill of performance. But Taylor's going to talk to you more about that next Sunday. For now, I want to finish up where we started today. Uh, We're talking just briefly about the uh, result of the same-sex marriage survey. And how we might think about that, 
having read through Galatians 4. During the lead-up to the survey, there's a, a lot of kind of church and religious involvement, and certainly now in the aftermath, there's going to be a lot of that as well, and there is a danger for Christians in this. There's a danger for churches in this. The danger is that as the debate moves now onto how the government might implement uh, the legislation and try to make sure that they have laws that will preserve religious freedoms, and I want to say that's a really important thing. You should be praying for our legislators as they uh, work on this, that our elected representatives uh, might have wisdom and, and generosity as they think through how to do all this. But the the danger for us, the danger for churches and for Christians is that as that debate is going on, we will get drawn down a path of salvation by moral reformation. We, We will feel that we need to be championing this cause so much so that it becomes the identifying mark of who we are as Christians. Certainly to the world outside, but maybe even in the way we think about ourselves. What what I mean is if we find our reason and our purpose in fighting to make sure that a biblical view of marriage is not obscured or pushed out into a place where it's no longer acceptable, I don't want you to misunderstand me because I do think that's important. We should stand up for a biblical view of marriage. The Bible's very clear on marriage. But the danger is that we could become people who define ourselves by those who hold to the Christian view of marriage when we ought to define ourselves as sinners who've been saved by grace, people who are known by God and loved by him, rescued by Jesus. That's especially true of our mission to the world. It's so easy for people outside the church to look at the church and say, They're self-righteous, moralistic campaigners. They define themselves by arguing for these outdated ideas about marriage. That's how people want to be able to define us. Let's make it clear that our identity is not in that, but our identity is people rescued by Jesus, people who are following Jesus. That's what we're on about. That's our mission here at EPC, isn't it? that we are growing followers of Jesus. So in terms of this chapter, Galatians 4, uh, whether we're thinking about society and marriage or whether it's something else, so within the Presbyterian church, having the right view of eldership is one of those things where people want to mark themselves out as having a particular identity. Or it could be any number of things. When I was at high school, the Christians were marked out as those who are King James Bible and separate swimming for males and females and the tongues and second baptism, however you want to define it out. Anything that gets added as a way to show that we belong, as a way to show that we're proper Christians, anything that gets added as a way to show that we have, uh, we're, we're the ones who truly have God's approval, Any of that will just lead us down a hell-bound path. Just as much as if we were going to worship the moon gods. So, let's keep our focus on Jesus. Paul is writing this to say, don't turn back to that slavery. Let's make sure we define ourselves as people who are known by God and loved by him, who've been rescued and set free 
by Jesus. That's the appeal in chapter 5, verse 1. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So what should you do then? Stand firm in that freedom and don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Be free in Christ. Let's pray. And um, as we pray, this, this prayer will be the way in which we wrap up our service today. So let's conclude in prayer. Our Father, we, um, <clears throat> we thank you that by spending a little bit of time paying attention to what's written in your word here, uh, we can see how serious it is that we make this distinction and that we not end up wandering down a path that leads us back into slavery. And we thank you, Lord, that you know us and that knowing everything about us, you still love us to the extent that you sent your son to rescue us and set us free. And we thank you that we are made free in Christ. Father, help us to be people who always define ourselves as that, who see our identity as sinners rescued by your grace, rescued by the Lord Jesus. And we pray that in knowing that you know us, we would be set free to love and honour and be obedient to you because we want to magnify your name and show that you are worthy of our obedience. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.